It's time for birthday boy. <laughs> birthday boy, Pastor Nick. Uh, I think your time was up about three minutes ago. <laughs> oh, goodness. How are we doing today? Welcome, welcome, everybody. Good to see everybody here. Hate birthdays. Just mine. I like everybody else's birthdays. Like everybody else's birthdays, just don't, you know. Eh, they're all right, I guess. Uh, so thank you very much. I did get some birthday wishes yesterday from on Facebook and, and stuff like that and all that kind of great stuff that goes along with it. So anyway, I feel like, man, before we dive into the scripture, we need to do a little bit more prayer here so, <laughs> to transition this. So let me, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's join together uh, in the Lord in prayer here. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We are going to hear from you, from your word. Uh, these, these are your words. This is your story that now we are part of because we are your children. And Lord, you're going to give some instruction, and um, sometimes it's not easy. So Lord, I pray that you give us guidance, give us wisdom, give us the understanding to, to know exactly what you're saying to each and every one of us here, to apply the word to our lives so that we can go out and be... Um, you know, we're, we're not striving on our own to, to be good, Lord. We're, we're already seen as good because of your sacrifice. But Lord, this, this is what we do is an outflowing of our hearts because of your sacrifice. And because of what you've done for us, Lord, we just want to uh, live a life that's pleasing to you uh, and that's uh, walk in humility and, and truth, Lord. Um, so I pray, Lord, that you just guide us this morning. Give us your instruction, and we come in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Luke 17, verse 1. We're going to start at verse 1 today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this. We'll go ahead and read this before we actually start talking about the Word. We're going to read 10 verses here. And so, of course, on the, the phones, tablets, or the Scripture, their Bibles in, in front of you, if you don't have one to follow along, I encourage you to do that. Um, but we're going to open up here in, in Luke 17. Verse 1, he said to his disciples, Jesus says to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if, the mill, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into, into the ocean than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times and in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have the faith, of a, if you have the, faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can, see, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Which one of you having his servant tending sheep or plowing will say, to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. Instead, he will not tell him, prepare something for me to eat. Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, can, uh, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he had did what he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. This is an interesting passage, interesting encounter that Jesus has with his disciples and then uh, further detail with his apostles, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit. There was a, a book oh came out a few years ago titled Humility and How I Achieved It. <laughs> so, and so that's, that's sort of contradictory, right? That's a, a contradictory statement. Humility and how I achieved it. It's, we, we, we read the story of the Good Samaritan uh, weeks ago from Luke. It, it's, it's as contradictory as that statement for that time, the Good Samaritan. There were no Good Samaritans for these people during that time. And so, you know, a statement like humility, how I, what, a, what a contradiction. Humility and how I finally have achieved it. Learn from me and you too can achieve it too is sort of, you know, that, that message. But what Luke's doing here is recording what Jesus has said, and, and, and this passage here is pointing towards basically one thought, and that is humility, to walk in humility. This is what the next kind of string of thoughts, the a collection of thoughts that, that Luke has recorded of Jesus. This is, this is where we're going today, humility, humility. In our world of social media influencers, 
the idea of humility whew, might need to be an idea that we continue to refresh and think about day after day, right? Uh, the world around us does not walk in humility or does not seem to walk in humility, and we need to be a people of humility, walking in that example for the world around us. And he starts off in the first couple of verses. He said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come. We will, we will be offended at something, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and you were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Right off the bat, it says he's talking to his disciples. And in the next section that we're going to read, uh, his, his apostles pipe up and say, hey, teach us more. And so the, the, uh, it looks like, the picture it looks like that Luke gives us is, is Jesus is addressing a larger group of his followers at the time, the disciples, his, his followers. We can say this is a larger group than just the 12. And then the 12 are going to have some questions for him that he's going to go into a little bit further detail uh, with. But right now it looks like he's addressing his followers. He's linking this encounter, he's linking this teaching to the, the previous encounter that they had with the Pharisees. And basically, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees were leading people away from God's kingdom. They're not leading it toward, they're not leading people towards God's kingdom. They're leading people away from God's kingdom. And Jesus is addressing, addressing that. But the point is also wider than that uh, here. I uh, like what N.T. Uh, Wright says here, he says, the, the way the world now is until God's final victory over the enemy, there are bound to be times when people will find their faith tested and, test sometimes, and tested sometimes beyond what they think they can bear. Have you ever felt like your faith has been tested? You've been offended by something or you've been tested, pushed somehow in your faith. This is what Jesus said, this is what's going to happen right? Offenses, he says right there, offenses will certainly come. We live in a, what they call a pluralistic culture, many different beliefs, many different values, many different opinions, many different ways of expressing those values, beliefs, and opinions. Uh, we, you know, our culture is built around this idea of democracy where everybody gets a say, even if it's different than what we think, but this is, what our cult, this is where we are as a culture. This is how we come together as a culture. And so if there are people out there who have different beliefs than you, different values than you, different opinions than you, different ways of living than you, what's going to happen when you brush up against them or you give your opinion or you know, what you see as truth? What's going to happen? There's a chance that we may get a little pushback. There's a chance that someone may offend us correct? Right? Anybody else see this out there today? Does it happen out there today? I'll tell you, let's full, pull open our Facebook or Twitter feeds right now and, you know, just go down the list of, okay, you know, all the things that could offend us. This, this is where we live. In the first century, um, even the Jewish people, and they, were, they wanted to isolate themselves as God's people, but still they were controlled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had what? A pantheon of gods, a pantheon of beliefs. And they too lived in this pluralistic culture. And Jesus is kind of giving, giving them some instructions on how do we do this? How do we walk in this? And we have to think about what is our response? So as you think about being offended or pushed a little bit in, in what you believe, what is our response to those who have difficult questions about Christianity? And they want to push on those questions about Christianity. How do we respond to people who speak poorly of the church or poorly of Jesus? How do we respond to those who actually call out hypocrisy in the church? How do we respond to those who maybe want to pass laws against freedom of religion? Maybe do things like tax the church or, you know, things like that, which, oh my goodness. How do we respond to those people? How do we respond to people who have different opinions about what is moral or what is right? How do we respond to people who may call us bigots or ridicule us in public or in the social media sphere. 
Those are some of the questions we have to think about. How do we respond? How do we respond? Because Jesus is not saying, oh, it might happen. Offenses will certainly come, is what Jesus says. Offenses will certainly come. And there are ways as believers in Jesus that we should be responding towards those offenses. What Jesus is talking about here, we're going to talk about forgiveness. What Jesus is talking about here, specifically in these, this, this section, are offenses to our faith. When people push back on our faith or what we believe or what we say we value. I really believe, I think we saw this at the, the beginning of the church, the founding of the church, I think we're going to see this more and more as our culture changes. I think that Christianity does best when its truth is worked out in a pluralistic culture rather than when it has complete control. I think people will actually see a true Jesus when we interact and we walk with those and interact with those people who have different views than us, different opinion, different values, different um, views on what's right and wrong, I think a true picture of Jesus will show rather than when we have complete control over everything. Anytime anybody gets complete control, it usually goes pretty poorly. It doesn't matter what philosophy you come from. Anytime someone tries to gain complete, absolute control, it usually goes pretty poorly. So we are working and we are living in this pluralistic culture just like they did in the first century. And we need to know, we need to see how we can walk. What are Jesus' instructions on how we can walk with those who will come against us? Who will have a different opinion than us? In this passage, Jesus reassures his disciples. This is one of the big questions here. Jesus has to reassure his disciples that God is still in control. All right, when it, when it feels like everything else is out of control. And, and right off the bat, you know, when Jesus has, goes back to heaven, he, he has his ascension and the, the disciples, the apostles are sent out and they start preaching. What happens to them? Immediately, almost immediately, they're taken into to jail, right? They're, they're hauled in, they're questioned. The, the, the offenses start to come to them almost immediately. And so Jesus reassures his disciples right here that God is still in control, He's still in control in this passage. And it's not our place to cast judgment on someone else. To cast judgment doesn't mean to ha- we don't have opinions. Doesn't mean we don't have values that we hold on to. Casting judgment within the scriptures means that we are actually the ones throwing the stones. We are the ones doling out the punishment. We are the ones who are, are, are the, the, uh, the judge and the jury and the executioner. He says, that's, that's not your job as, as a church. That's not your job. Matthew 7, Jesus says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. God, he's going to say, God is still in control here. And we can walk the way that Jesus is going to tell us to walk because God is still in control in control. And we don't have to be the ones who are throwing the stones or doling out the punishment for something that we don't like. Jesus, though, he's, he's, it's interesting, in this passage, Jesus does talk about, man, a, a pretty straightforward example of punishment. Uh, one of the harshest he probably mentions in, the, in his ministry, in, in verse 2, it'd be, it would be better for him, this is the one who causes the offense, causes someone to stumble in their faith, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. God is watching. This is a millstone here. If you don't know what a millstone is, this is a millstone. It's got a hole in it, used for grinding grain. It was thousands of pounds you know, can you imagine that? You put a little necklace chain through that, put it around your neck and jump off the pier. What's going to happen to you? That's pretty brutal. Jesus, are you in the mafia now? I don't <laughs> I think this is all speaking toward, you know, God sees this. God doesn't let the offenses just go, right? We, we believe that God is just 
and God is going to make all things right in the end, and that means judging and punishing sin, right? So he says there are consequences. There will be consequences for people who cause others to stumble in their faith or others who are the consequences for, for persecution. But because we aren't in charge, we're not in charge of the outcome or, or even the motives, Jesus gives us a different job. God has his job of being God and being in control. We have our job of being his creation, walking in his ways, and being his image bearers. And he says in verse 3, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Be on your guard. Let's, let's take our faith seriously. Let's, let's know what we believe, what we hold true. Let's not give that up, right? Let's not give that up. And if someone comes against you and offends you in your faith or pushes on your faith or tries to make you stumble in your faith, uh, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. See, Jesus used the word rebuke here, right? So now we get to, isn't Jesus saying we can go after these people? You know, I think in our, when I think of rebuke, I think of, you know, angry people online yelling at one another, right? You know, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong kind of thing. No, he's not giving us permission to tell people off right? To, to bring back anger for anger. Re- rebuke means to admonish or warn someone about something to avoid. Rebuke does not mean that we get to be loudmouth jerks to everybody around us who we don't like, all right? And I see way too much of that in social media and online and the news and all that kind of stuff, right? Someone says something, now what do I have to do? I got to top it, and I'm going to top it, and what do they have to do? They got to top it. Man, now we're in this thing, and I got to, what do I have to do? I have to top it again, and just escalates and escalates. This is not the instruction that Jesus gives us. It's okay to warn people, tell people the truth. And when they come to you and they repent, forgive them. This, this whole thing here of repentance and forgiveness, I think, hinges on relationships. It requires relationships, right? Sometimes when we think about forgiveness, we treat it sort of like the partner who says, well, what did I do wrong? And then the other partner says, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. you know, sometimes we treat it like that and we want to hold on to an offense it's like, well, I don't, I don't even understand what I did wrong. Well, if you didn't figure it out, then I'm not going to let you know. And we try to treat it like that. That's not building the relationship. I think forgiveness and this, this repentance and forgiveness, I think this requires relationship. He's talking about people like the Pharisees who are brothers. They're, they're, they're part of the community. They're just not followers of Jesus, but they're still in this close community with one another. Another word for, for brother here uh, could be neighbor. And we talk a lot about neighbors over the last couple of years and how we treat our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? Be on your guard if your brother or your neighbor sins against you and they repent and, and then we come back with forgiveness. And again, if he, man, if he sins against you seven times in a day, comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. Do you see the importance of forgiveness here? When Jesus starts quoting things like seven times seven, you know, all that kind of stuff, he's, he's like, this is, this is a number of total completion. Nothing is left out. Nothing is lacking here. And again, Jesus is addressing specifically here when people come against our faith and try to may, maybe trip us up in our faith. Is it hard to forgive someone who just comes at you? So you've, you've said something, and all of a sudden, you know, on, on the topic, they, they all of a sudden go on a rant and come against you and try to prove why you're wrong and, and throw out all these arguments or just these emotional things. And our culture is so built on emotions now, right? Every, every response we make is built on an emotional thing, you know, and that's all we got. Um, and uh, 
it's so easy to get into this. You know, this, 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 I think this is why this is so, forgiveness is so hard. Forgiveness means putting ourselves second to someone else. Forgiveness means putting ourselves under someone else. God is calling us here in this, in this place. Jesus is calling us to repeated forgiveness. And it's a position, it's a place where we're dropping the, the moral high ground or that attitude of having this moral high ground. Sometimes we get into the, the pattern of, well, you did something wrong to me, so now I get to choose if I forgive you or not. And it, it sort of makes me feel superior over you. It's like I can hang this over your head for as long as possible, right? Well, you did this to me, right? And, and I don't think we have a true understanding of, of what it means to, to, to repent and, and seek forgiveness because oftentimes what do we do? We're, we're like children. And it's like, well, I did something wrong. Oh, you know, please forgive me. Just real quick, like, you know, we just want to get it off our chest. We want to sort of be done with it. And then we just, oh, yeah, I forgive you. But then we really haven't. We really haven't worked out the details or the issues with that other person. And, and still in our mind, it's like, well, I can't let that go. I can't let that go. Forgiveness here is letting things go. But oftentimes we put ourselves in the place of power where, you know, tell you, you know our forgiveness or unforgiveness, it's either going to free somebody or it's either going to keep them in slavery to us. Jesus says, no. No. Forgiveness shouldn't get harder and harder over time, as if we're just trying to better constrain our anger for longer and longer amounts of time. It's like if you're holding your breath underwater and, okay, I, I can do it for 10 seconds and then I go back under and then I try to do it for 20 seconds and I go back under and I try to do it for 30 and, so, and we're sort of straining to gain more, gain more, get better at it. Actually, forgiveness isn't like that. Forgiveness is a release. It's a release for you not to carry that burden and that stress and that weight of judging the other person all the time. And it's a way to release that other person you don't have to worry that I'm going to hold this, always hold this against you. I'm not going to carry this with me. Again, this is why I think relationships are key to this. Relationships are, are critical for this, this idea of repentance and forgiveness. Jesus is calling us to a humility that takes no advantage of the situation and to welcome this neighbor in to a generous forgiveness. Why? Because this is what God has shown each and every one of us. Has he not? All of us sitting here who have accepted Christ as our Savior, what did that mean? What kind of forgiveness did God have to grant us in order to invite us to be into his fam in his family? It took the death of his son on the cross. And because of that, we're to walk in that example because God has already shown us how to do it first. It's through humility. Forgiveness requires us to meditate on God's grace and focus on his forgiveness as a source of our own. I don't think we can do it without that. I don't think we can do it without realizing the weight of what happened for us, each and every one of us. And it requires a willingness to be in relationships with one another, in relationships where listening happens, where we're willing to listen, to open our ears to other people. It requires that we be in relationships where disagreements are, are tolerated. I don't say accepted, all accepted. You know, opinions and conclusions aren't all accepted, but they're at least tolerated where you know what, we can sit down and have this conversation with one another. We may end up on different sides of the street, even at the end, but the relationship is more important than the disagreement and the issue. It requires listening, it requires being okay with disagreements, and it requires seeking understanding 
And I think this is what's lacking in the world today. Well, we're not listening. We don't tolerate other views, and we don't seek to understand. Not seek to agree with in everything, but at least seek to understand where people are coming from. This is what we do. I've got a, another slide. You may not be able to read all this, but th- this, is, this is just a, a picture of, of what we do. Number one, we've got our worldview, sort of our views, our opinions, our beliefs, our values, all that kind of stuff. And this one speaks to online behavior. Uh, th- this, is, this is a pattern that they've, they've found in our online behavior. Uh, number two is uh, we, we search what we like, basically, right? We end up getting in this loop of we've got our worldview. It shows up then more and more and more online. And then it feeds, it continues to feed us through this cycles, through this loop which just puts us in this echo chamber of just, again, reinforcing what we believe and further dividing us from other people. This is, we get stuck here. We get stuck here, right? Anybody have a social media feed where it's like you agree with everything that pops up or a majority of everything that pops up? Actually, that's, that's what the algorithm does. That's what the algorithms do. That's, this is what our, our, our social network does for us, which further divides us from other people, further separates us from other views, other opinions, from actually being able to be in conversation and understand other people, further divides us. This is how we get pulled into tighter and tighter groups or even cults because we just get wrapped up in this pattern, in this behavior. I like what C.S. Lewis says here, when you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. So you have this, so this action comes first. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more and more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. How are we walking? How are we walking with other people? Are we following the world's patterns where if you attack me, I've got to attack you and vice versa, back and forth, back and forth? And the beauty of the church is, you know, the, the beauty of the church is we're not all the same. We're, we're such a glorious mix of different experiences and cultures and backgrounds. And the kingdom of God is, is built on this, 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 it's throughout history, throughout time, all this kind of stuff, and, and the kingdom of God is going to be just such a rich experience of difference when Jesus comes back. Different people, different ways of living life, different cultures, different strengths, different experiences. And a church that isolates itself from those who are different isn't actually a church, but it's just a country club. When we're more interested in isolation, we're no longer the church, we're just a certain country club where people can, a certain kind of people will belong. And so what Jesus is talking about here requires that we ground our faith in Christ and not ground our faith in our circumstances or our opinions. See, he comes here and he says, hey, offenses will certainly come, right? You're going to have disagreements. People are going to push on you. People may even come after you, all right? That's going to come. Are you willing to be in relationship? Are you willing to still build relationship? Jesus does not come back here and say, well, you know, when they come at you because of me, then here's your next step. This is how you attack them again, back. You know, this is, this is not what Jesus says, you know. They're going to attack you. This is how you, you counterattack. They attack over here. This is how you counterattack that. You attack, they attack over here. This is how you counterattack that. That's not what Jesus is saying here. You come together, hopefully there's repentance, and then there's free forgiveness. Sometimes we sit on the side and like, well, if they would just come and say they were sorry, or if they would come and apologize to me, then, then everything would be cool and I could offer my forgiveness. I think this, this thing is here that, you know, you said something that hurt me. It made me feel this way. It made me 
respond this way. Oh, I, oh my goodness, I didn't believe, I, I can't believe I said that thing to you or whatever. You see how, how this repentance forgiveness thing isn't just a, well, if they do this, then I can do this. It's a, okay, you know, something really stung. Can we talk about it? Can we talk about it? And maybe out of that conversation comes, oh, you know what? I'm really sorry about that. I did not mean to do that to you. This is coming from my worldview or my bias or, you know, this is what I've always believed and you're coming from a different position and so it was just natural for me to attack you. I'm sorry I did that. Oh, great. Let's bring reconciliation to the, re- the relationship. And Jesus says, you know, they could do this all day long. And the end goal is still forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. And again, Jesus is tying this to the interaction he had with the Pharisees, and they're not a group of people who like Jesus or his disciples. And most of, this is built on relationship. This is built on relationship. There, there are times when people are going to offend you and, and you don't have a relationship with them, you know, right? This is social media. This is social media world where someone's going to say something on social media and you, you don't have a relationship with you and with them and they're going to offend you. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because there's no chance that they're going to come back and repent if there's no relationship between you, right? I think we take Peter's advice and give it up to God and release it from our own hands. First Peter, he says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at proper time. Let, let God be the judge. Let God do the exalting. We walk humbly. Verse 7, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. He cares about you. There is someone out there who cares for you, even if it looks like the rest of the world is there de- set on attacking you. There's someone out there who cares for you, and he has big enough hands, big enough arms where we can cast all of our cares to him, and he's going to recognize it, acknowledge us, and take care of it for us. Because we don't own anyone else's opinions. We don't own anybody else's actions. We don't own anybody else's values. In fact, the, the audience, this first century audience, would, would have had no idea about the reach that we now have in this world. We can see anything that happens in this world at any time. They, they would have had no idea about this. This is why this, I think what Jesus is talking about is, is these close, intimate relationship that they have, and, and how do we make sure that we're, we're, we're cultivating that? And if there are those on the outside who are like, you know what, I, we just don't even have a connection, but I know you're saying something hurtful, harmful. All I can do is give it to God. I don't put the zinger back out. I don't try to win the argument, maybe, you know, I don't try to put my five-point outline and my thesis out there because there's, there's, no, there's no connection here. There's no value in that. We just give it to God. Give it to God. You don't see the first century church worrying a whole lot about Caesar and what he's doing, right? They were primarily concerned with what and at least the apostles who were instructing him, primarily concerned about, this is what you get to do. This is how you get to live. There are forces all over this world that are going to come against us because we, now we are part of a new kingdom, right? We're accountable to a new king. And you can't control what a Caesar does. You can't control, we can't control what a president does. We can't control what some of our representatives do. We can't control what people do in other states. It's hard enough to even just think about what we can do in our little state here, right? But we get caught up in all this stuff, and someone across the country says something, and we, we take offense of it, and, and then it's, it becomes our business, and just cast your cares on God. Cast your cares on God, because why? Because He cares for you. Humble yourselves before God under His mighty hand, Walk in humility under God and His direction. And at some point in time, He'll take care of the rest and He'll exalt those who need to be exalted and He'll bring down those who need to be brought down. When it comes to the context of what Jesus is saying, again, in relationship, we want to make sure that our unforgiveness isn't the millstone that's dragging someone down to the bottom of the ocean. Right? 
We want to make sure that our unforgiveness, our breaking of relationships, our whatever it may be, we're not the ones with putting the millstone on somebody, dragging someone down. And the 12 disciples, they, they understood this huge challenge because they come right back out and say, Lord, increase our faith. How in the world do we do this? How in the world do we accomplish this? This is, this is way too big for us. And he says, if you have the faith, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, in verse six, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. What in the world does that mean? It means that we take our small faith and put it in a great God. We take our small faith and put it into a great God. Sometimes we get caught up in saying, well, I'm trying to increase my faith. I'm trying to increase my faith. I'm trying to make it bigger. I'm trying to make it bigger. But all we're doing is like spinning our own wheels, trying to make something accomplish, happen on our own. And we sort of leave God off to the side. He says, I, think about it this way. Think about faith like a window. Does it matter if the window is an inch by an inch or a bigger window like this? Does it matter as, as long as it's pointed, it's looking out on a great God, right? doesn't really matter. It could be, our faith could be the size of a people, but if it's focused on a great God, then God can do great things through us. Like helping us walk in humility and forgiveness. Where we get in trouble is when we see the, we, we look out into the world, but we're actually look, we replace the window with a mirror. What does the mirror do? It just reflects back to us, right? And when we start to look in a mirror and, and, and focus our attention on a mirror, and we only be, we talk to ourselves through the mirror, what we're going to think, at the end of the day, we're going to think our ideas are the best ideas because that's coming back to us. We're going to think we have the best opinions because that's all that's coming back to us. As we look in a mirror all day long, the stand, what does the standard become? The standard becomes what we see in the mirror versus a window that's pointing towards God and, and, and we're looking out on God and his glory and, what he, and his instruction for us. I'm going to keep moving along here. Verse 7, which one of you having a servant? Jesus, Jesus is going to talk about power. Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? So you got a servant out there. What do you do when a servant comes in after he's done plowing the field? Do you, if you're the master, do you go, hey, you, you take a seat. I'm going to wait on you. No, instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat? Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? I think this is why Jesus is talking to the apostles because this is a hard little teaching here. Hard little teaching. He's, he's, he's giving a pretty straightforward teaching on our position and God's position. And, and the, the apostles have come and said, please, please help us to increase our faith. He said, you want to increase your faith? Remember your position. You know this whole servant-master situation that you got going on in the world here, right? There are masters and there are servants. We've even got them here in this country, um, Israel, first century Israel. This is the relationship. This is the pecking order. This is the hierarchy when it comes to God and us. A servant and a master are different, right? And their responsibilities and roles are different. The question is, what position do we think we occupy? Master or servant? Master or servant. Oftentimes, we try to put ourselves into the master position. But what position did Jesus occupy? Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. What does Jesus do? comes to serve, lowered himself, humbled himself. And then he tells us in John, he says, well, if this is what your master did, 
then what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Russell Moore um, wrote an article actually this week. I want to read some portions of this as we're closing this down. I, th- I thought this was pretty good. It's the, the article is called The Evangelical Temptation to Prove Ourselves. The Evangelical Temptation to Prove Ourselves. This is a little lengthy. Let me, let me read this. We've got a few minutes left. Let me read this. So this is Russell Moore talking. For a long time, I have feared that my fellow American evangelical Christians were yielding to the third temptation of Christ to sacrifice integrity for conquest of power. I've come to believe that the greatest temptation we face right now may be the one that seems the farthest from us. It's the last temptation in Luke's account. The devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Satan even had a scripture verse to go with this temptation, a passage from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. As he always did, Jesus recognized what was going on. And in response, he cited Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. What is this verse referring to? The place was called Massah. The Bible tells us because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the great question. Is the Lord actually among us or not? The people of Israel, the very ones God had delivered out of Egypt with parted waters, started fighting in a drought because they wondered whether God was really who he said he was, a God who went before and behind. They asked Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die with thirst? They lost confidence. They wanted a sign. Had Jesus thrown himself from the temple, angels would have likely rescued him. It would have tangibly verified to Jesus what God the Father told him. You are my son, who I love and am well pleased. Even more than that, the crowds below would have seen this happening. It would have been public vindication to Jesus from the very people of the sea where where he would be crucified later on. No one would have dared suggest that he was demon-possessed, a lunatic, or a closet insurrectionist. He would have proved himself to be the anointed one of God. Jesus would have forced a sign, and Jesus called that a sin. 2010, a political scientist, James Davidson, Hunter identified that the distinguishing characteristic of current political psychology goes beyond just resentment and involves a combination of anger, envy, hate, rage, and revenge as the motive of political action. The years since Hunter penned this have proven him right. Much of what has passed for political action or just cultural engagement is really about a sense of injury, more specifically, a sense of humiliation. You think you're better than me? I'm going to prove you wrong. We want to be vindicated in public. We don't want to just win. We want to own whoever has mistreated us or made fun of us. You hear this out there? I'm going to to own the liberals. I'm going to own the conservatives. All that stuff out there. We want to be respected, to be affirmed, if nothing else, than to boost our numbers and our power. Most of the rest of the world can see this for what it is, a lack of confidence. We want to be proven right because we don't remember who we are or why we're here. Referring to this incident with Israel, God said through the psalmist that the Israelites put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They forgot who they were. Jesus did not. He believed that he was exactly who his father said he was, the beloved son of God. So he did not need to clamor for immediate satisfaction of his appetites through the bread. His father had fed with manna before, and he would do it again. He did not need to grasp for immediate power over the nations. He would receive this not instead of humiliation, but through it. When we forget the story the Bible tells us, we start seeing our audience as whatever mob or strongman will protect or respect us. We forget about the judgment seat of Christ. We want a judgment seat now. We want to be proven right now. God would prove Jesus' anointing, not by vindication, but by resurrection. But even then, Jesus did not need to prove himself. 
As New Testament scholar Richard Hayes points out, the risen Christ did not appear in the temple and chastise his opponents. He did not appear to Pilate or Rome to Caesar. The resurrection appearance were, were not, how do you like me now? To those who didn't believe or respect him. Instead, he appeared to his followers, to, woman, to the woman at the tomb, to the men at the, in the boats, to the gathered little flocks on the mountain. The little band that would turn the world upside down left the room, Pentecost, not to prove themselves right, but to bear witness to something real, to someone alive. Their words were not, is God among us or not? But their words were, my Lord and my God. What if we did the same? What if we were a church so confident in our own identity in Christ today, at long last we had nothing to prove but something to give, life and rest, joy and peace. Paul writes this in Philippians Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, uh, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Forgiveness and humility... Allow God's great power to work through us so that others can see Christ more clearly. Unforgiveness places us in a position of control, but it's, it's a space that we have to keep fighting and clawing for because we can't have to keep adding to the books with other people. And the books become heavy. And then they have their books against us, and we're fighting with our, our ledgers in our books about who's right and who's just. Humility, according to Christ, is the key. He says in verse 10, in the same way when you have done all that you were commanded, when he's talking about servants and masters, the servants, you say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. He reminds us again, God is in control. God is the one with authority. We are the workers under our King, Christ Jesus. And when he's making this statement here at the end that we are unworthy servants, it doesn't mean that we, we lack, lack a proper, proper sense of love or, or self-worth. It's not about that. We're, we're reminding ourselves of the great truth that we can't take God from his great position and put us in it. And when we hold unforgiveness, when we won't walk humbly, when we won't look to build relationships instead of tear them apart, we're actually putting ourselves in the position of God, trying to bring His judgment on our own. So humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, like I'm just a worm, but it's thinking of ourselves less, because there's a great King out there, a great God who loves me, He cares for me, I can cast my cares to Him He's going to take care of me. He holds me firmly in control. Therefore, I can walk as he calls me to walk. It's great. Feels good when everything feels like it's in control. You know, like we have everything under control. Disciples felt great when they saw the miracles. Jesus is walking on water. They're feeding everybody. People are coming in droves. Jesus seems to have all those right answers. It feels great when all that stuff happens, but... How is our faith when things go bad or they feel out of control? Jesus is put on trial. Jesus is killed. They're put on trial. They lose their families. They lose their property. We may be put on trial. We may lose family. We may lose property. They may kill us because of our faith. It becomes a very lonely place. Maybe we don't get the miracles from Jesus that we thought we would. Jesus, why am I carrying this burden? I prayed so hard for it, so long for it. Why won't you just release me from this? Or our life doesn't magically get better when we accept Jesus. How does our faith continue on in that? Relationship tensions like this will always happen because we live here in this fallen world. How does our faith go on? How do we walk even when things seem to be going poorly? Praise be to God that we have a God and a Savior who holds all things together. 
Colossians 1, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Talking about Jesus, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. We can let go of the need to try to hold things together because we know that there is a God who is holding all things together. Instead, we can spend our time and our energy putting ourselves second under God's plan and offering what we can for this world that, that so desperately needs forgiveness and examples of what it means to walk in humility, walk humbly before our God. I like this quote from C.S. Lewis. We'll end with this thing again. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Think about this person that you just can't stand right now. Think about that person. If you're behaving as if you loved that person, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourselves disliking or continuing to injure them over and over and over again. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. I think this is what Christ is calling us to do, to walk in these kind of relationships. Lord Jesus, this takes your strength. This takes your power. You were the only one who could walk to the cross, bearing the ways of this world, the sin of this world. This is why we needed you as our Savior. This is why we need you as our Lord and our King, because you are the only one who can conquer this on our behalf. Without that, we are still spinning our wheels. We're still, we're still fighting one another. We're still living in a world that's, that's dog-eat-dog and every man for himself. But Lord, you've called us to something greater. You've called us to your kingdom, to new life, to bring new life to this world. So Lord, we pray that we walk in your example. Lord, light the way for us. Lord, may we step back so that you are always in front, so that we are always focused and fixed on you and not ourselves. Lord, may you give us the power and the strength and the boldness to walk in this, this new humility that you've called us to. It's only by your grace, and it's only by your mercy and your love that we can do this. We come in your name, Jesus. Amen.